Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus and Paul's favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. Our purpose in this series of programs is to ask some of the most basic and fundamental questions about our Christian faith. What was the gospel that Jesus preached? What is the meaning of faith and repentance? What did the New Testament church and the apostles offer the public as a summons to belief and action? What were they promising their followers? We suggest that Jesus Christ, when he's properly understood, was, so to speak, in the immortality business. Not, of course, in a financial sense. His claim was that our response to the message which he brought was critically important for the ultimate destiny of all of us. Now, one can ignore these claims, but it makes better sense that we should carefully weigh what Jesus had to say before we reject him out of hand. That's only reasonable. In these programs, we want to bring before you from the Bible what Jesus actually preached as the gospel. You may be surprised at what we have to present. We invite you to check our findings always carefully in your own Bible at home, your Bible, which is that accurate, documented report of what Jesus preached and taught nearly 2,000 years ago. So precious are his words that they've been painstakingly preserved for us all those years. So what was the essence of Jesus' message? It makes perfect sense to us that we should begin at the beginning of the recorded ministry of Jesus. Strangely enough, those early chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which describe how Jesus set out on his mission and ministry in Palestine, are very seldom given much airing in preaching in the late 20th century. If you'd been a reporter in those early days of the ministry of Jesus in first century Palestine, and if you'd followed the crowds to hear what this new and exciting preacher was bringing to the public, what impression would you have gained? Let me remind you of the passage in Luke 4 and verse 16, where we read that Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So Jesus then, as a typical Jew, went to church or the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he was obviously regarded as some kind of an authority in theology because they allowed him to read from the Scripture. He then took the book of the prophet Isaiah, that major book from what we call the Old Testament, really the Hebrew Bible, and he opened the book of Isaiah and found the place, actually in chapter 61, where the following words were written. No doubt all eyes were fixed on this brilliant young preacher as he began to read from the text of Isaiah 61. And he read the following words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and also to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. At that point Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue, Luke says, were fixed on him. End of quotation. After that Jesus began to say, This text has been fulfilled in your own ears today, that's to say, in my own ministry. Now, what was the significance of Jesus' inaugural speech, his inaugural address there in the synagogue in Nazareth? He first began by saying that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Now, what would the Spirit of God have meant to a first-century Jewish audience? Well, 
simply the Spirit of God. It was the operational presence of God. It was God extending himself, his Spirit, to the creation. God at work, God in action, God in his creative activity. To claim that the Spirit of God was at work in him was something amounting to a claim to be a prophet, a spokesman for God, in whose mouth were the very words of God. But then Jesus mentioned that God had anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. Now to be anointed again meant to be the one on whom the Spirit of God rested in power, and it would remind the people immediately of perhaps the most famous word in their heritage, that word Messiah, which simply means anointed. That's to say God's chosen king, the Messiah or anointed one. Those of us who have read Psalm 2 will have noted that God promised one day to place on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, his anointed, his Messiah. It's unfortunate, actually, that our Old Testament, our Hebrew Bible, doesn't render the word anointed as Messiah. We would then see that the word Messiah occurs quite often in the Hebrew Scriptures as being a description of those who are special channels of the energy, the power, and the Spirit of God. And I use the word channel there, of course, in the best sense. By applying this verse from Isaiah to himself, Jesus was obviously claiming to be a great deliverer in Israel, one who would free the nation from the bondage of foreign domination and give them the supreme position amongst the nations which had been promised by their prophets. And so this inaugural speech of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 is fundamental to our understanding of the Christian ministry that he carried out in Galilee. Now, if we advance a few verses in the fourth chapter of Luke, we find another definition, and the most illuminating definition, of what Jesus was preaching about. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus said the following words, I must preach or proclaim the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's the reason that God commissioned me. Now, that must be one of the most revealing statements of Jesus anywhere to be found in the Gospels. It opens up the mind of Jesus beautifully for us. It unpacks his whole thinking. He says that his commission from God is specifically to announce the Gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. And following that, then he kept on preaching, we read, in the synagogues of Judea, and the crowds of people, multitudes of people, surrounded him to hear what was called the Word of God. And I mentioned in passing that the Word of God is not just a synonym, a vague synonym for the Bible. It's actually a word which explains the gospel, which describes the specific gospel that Jesus was preaching. In other words, the gospel of the kingdom is known throughout the New Testament as the Word of God. So everywhere you come across the Word of God in the New Testament, in nearly every case, you can safely say, that it's a reference to the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus and the apostles preached it. Incidentally, when the apostles speak of the Bible, they refer to those books not as the word of God, but as the holy scriptures, the sacred writings. There can be no doubt at all that the heart of what Jesus was saying had to do with this gospel of the kingdom of God. Let me comment on that word kingdom of God from the writings of James Stewart as he observed that every movement that ever got going in history has a central slogan, a central idea that galvanizes its followers into action. Every new idea, says James Stewart, that has ever burst upon the world has had a watchword, always 
there's been some word or phrase in which the very genius of the thing has been concentrated and focused. Some word or phrase to blazon on its banners when it went marching out into the world. Islam had a watchword, God is God and Muhammad is his prophet. The French Revolution had a watchword, liberty, equality and fraternity. The democratic idea had a watchword, government of the people, by the people and for the people. The Student Volunteer Missionary Union had a watchword, the evangelization of the world in this generation. Every new idea that has stirred the hearts of man has created its own watchword, something to wave like a flag, to rally the ranks and win recruits. Now, the greatest idea that has ever been born upon the earth is the Christian idea, and Christianity came with a watchword, magnificent, mighty, and imperial, and that watchword was the kingdom of God. Now, we should notice that the kingdom of God was not a new idea with Jesus or with his audience. It was not original to him. To Jewish ears, the kingdom of God had a familiar sound. And in the writings of the Bible on which Jesus was nurtured, the kingdom of God was prominent in practically every section of it. If the actual phrase was not there, the idea permeated the Hebrew Bible. Now, the phrase kingdom of God does not occur with any great frequency in the Old Testament, but the idea is everywhere. The kingdom of God was the national hope of the people of Israel. One striking example is found in Daniel 7, verse 14, where we read that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom one which will never be destroyed. And in that same chapter, in the 27th verse of Daniel 7, we read of a time coming when the Son of Man will be given a kingdom and all nations and tribes and peoples of the world will serve and obey him. And that kingdom is said to be the kingdom under the whole heaven. Obviously and clearly, a kingdom to be established upon this earth. Now, in the other writings of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, reference is frequently made to a time when God will establish a new domain, a new dominion, and a new era of peace on earth. He will place his son, the Messiah, on a throne in Jerusalem, and the kingdom of God then will reach out to the far corners of the globe. We'll have world peace, and there will be international disarmament, and peace and prosperity and success for the whole of humanity. Even nature will reflect the harmony that will exist at that time among nations of the world. The poisonous animals will become harmless, and the whole world will enjoy an era of unparalleled blessing and prosperity from one corner of the earth to the other. Now, that was certainly the idea behind the kingdom of God as Jesus' contemporaries would have understood it. It was the national hope of Israel based on the Old Testament. There can be absolutely no doubt that when he called his compatriots to repentance and belief in the future coming kingdom, this would have been the idea in their minds. A tremendous political revolution by which God would intervene and change forever the political structures of this earth and replace them by the kingdom of God with God's Messiah, God's chosen agent ruling in a brand new world order from Jerusalem. I think it will not be difficult to see that if we're to grasp the meaning of Jesus' challenge to us to repent and believe in the good news about the kingdom, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it's essential that we get a clear idea of what Jesus meant by the kingdom. Now, we're not here to read our own ideas into Jesus' teaching. What we have to do is to ask not what does the kingdom of God mean as popularly used today, not what do we think it ought to mean, but what did Jesus of Nazareth mean by the kingdom of God. 
in the context in which he spoke. That and only that should be our concern as thorough students of the Bible, as ones desiring to follow Jesus closely, to follow his mind and subscribe to his agenda and not our own. Well, the kingdom of God is certainly a political idea. Immediately, I must tell you, politics and spiritual things are not divorced and separated in the Bible. Just because the kingdom is a political idea does not mean that it isn't also a spiritual idea. You see, in the Hebrew way of thinking, something can be both concrete and physical and material, and also spiritual. Remember that the risen Jesus reappeared to his disciples by a lake. Now, this was not a ghost story. The Messiah said, Touch me! See, it's me, Jesus, myself. He then proceeded to have breakfast with his disciples by the side of the lake. He actually ate some fish. Now, that was a spiritual event. But the Messiah, as a spiritual person, was also at the very same time a material, physical, corporeal person. That, perhaps, is the single most important idea that we need to get clear before we tackle the New Testament with intelligence. It's quite wrong to suppose that a political kingdom is not also, at the same time, a spiritual kingdom. You can have a kingdom with a king ruling in Jerusalem, sitting on a throne at the headquarters of the kingdom in Jerusalem, in Israel, on this planet, and that can and will be a thoroughly political thing, of course, as well as being a thoroughly spiritual thing. We must not dichotomize and divide between political and spiritual because we think those two things cannot belong together. But the Bible writers think otherwise. Our time is running out for today. You can email us or call us for our free book on the kingdom and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.